This episode is brought to you by my signature coaching program for women, God Wants You to Be Rich. We had a beautiful cohort of women earlier this year go through the entire life-changing 10-week program. If you want first dibs on info on the program and some gifts, join the waiting list at yaeltrush.com forward slash waitlist. Again, to join the waitlist for God Wants You to Be Rich, head over to yaeltrush.com forward slash waitlist. Jewish Money Matters, episode 291, The Life, the Genius, and Legacy of the Greatest Banker of the Second Half of the 20th Century, Mr. Edwin Safra, with financial journalist Daniel Gross. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. There is something about modern finance with this short-term mentality where you use other people's money to lend it to other people who are lending it to other people, and that's how you make money quickly. I think that is very much part of how the financial world works. That was alien to someone like Edmund Safra, who believed that any business was a family business. You just heard financial journalist and historian Dan Gross speak about Edmund Safra, considered by many the greatest banker of the second half of the 20th century. Despite his public achievements building a global financial empire, Mr. Safra remained a very private man and to many a mystery. Why? You'll soon hear from my guest today, Dan Gross, who masterfully reconstructed Safra's life in a book that highlights his timeless banking principles, his commitment to Jewish values like charity, education, honesty, and more. Dan Gross is one of the most widely read authors on finance, economics, and business history. Over the last three decades, he's reported from more than 30 countries covering major news stories in the financial world. Gross worked as a reporter at The Republic and at Bloomberg News, wrote The Economic View column in the New York Times. Times and served as Slate's Money Bucks columnist. At Newsweek, where he was a columnist and correspondent, he authored seven cover stories. Dan Gross is also the best-selling author of eight books, including Forbes' Greatest Business Stories of All Time, Dumb Money, How America's Greatest Financial Minds Bankrupted the Nation, and Better, Stronger, Faster, The Myth of American Decline and the Rise of a New Economy. I confess that I could not put Dan's latest book down, A Banker's Journey, How Edmund Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. I absolutely loved it. It's phenomenal. And today I have the pleasure to speak with Dan about this slight departure from his traditional work, the personal impetus to write this book, and of course, the life, the genius, and the legacy of Mr. Edmund Safra. Here's Dan Gross. Gross. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great. And thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited. I'm blown away by your latest book, A Banker's Journey, How Edmund Safra Built a Financial Empire. Dan, before we dive in and talk all about Edmund Safra, let's let's start with you. You're the author of eight best-selling books. This is your ninth book. You're one of the most widely read writers on finance, economics, business. You've covered everything from the dot-com boom, the global financial crisis, the recession of 08. I mean, this book, a biography is 
somewhat of a departure from your previous work. What was the impetus to embark on this work, which I imagine piecing together maybe was perhaps even a more daunting task than prior works? What was the impetus? Well, first of all, thank you for that recitation of my of my resume. I've been a you know a journalist my entire adult life. Um, so I've been a correspondent, columnist, writing about politics, economics, and business. Most of the books I've written have been about uh, business history or things like the financial crisis, uh, books about ideas, trends, not so much about people. Mm-hmm. And so this is definitely the first biography I've ever written. Uh, it's the first, I would say, explicitly Jewish book I've ever written. And it's sort of personal in in some ways, which uh, we can discuss. So how did I settle upon this or how did I come upon this? You know, I've spent a lot of my time, I've reported from 30 different countries, always trying to travel, um, sometimes much to my family's chagrin, mm-hmm. because you're looking for a story. You want to go talk to people and see things because you're looking for a story. And sometimes when you're lucky, uh, a story will find you sitting right where you are. And that's that's kind of what happened um, in this case. Again, I've, I've done a lot of like business and economic history. And so when... Uh, my name is somewhat known in those areas. And somebody called me and said, listen, do you know who Edmund Safra is? Um, the foundation that he left behind when he dies, they have this remarkable uh, set of documents and archive. They have transcripts of hundreds of interviews of people who knew him at every stage of his life. And again, for your uh, listeners, someone had approached me and said, do you know who Edmund Safra is? Uh-huh. Uh, his foundation that he left behind has this remarkable collection of archive, personal papers, uh, interviews with hundreds of people who knew him. And my response was, yes, of course, I know who he is, a business writer. I covered this world, but also a Syrian Jew. Edmund Safra is the one name that is known. He's like a, a Warren Buffett and a Rothschild all put together in one person. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that the foundation had this material, uh, that they were potentially willing to let someone look around and see if there was a story to tell there, I grew very interested. Um, mm. They turned over basically on a thumb drive the contents of these archives. And the way I describe it, it's like dumping out a jigsaw puzzle with 5,000 pieces because there were documents in Hebrew and Arabic and Italian and Portuguese and Spanish. There was stuff about banking in Beirut, um, coffee in Brazil, private banking in Switzerland. And again, these hundreds of interviews in many different languages with people who sat with him in, in school in second grade, with rabbis, with Jacob Rothschild with Titans of Finance. And if you understood how all these different pieces of this person and this history connected in a way that a jigsaw puzzle does, the story was there to be told. And mm-hmm. I think because of the combination of my own background and my own professional background put me in a kind of unique position to do so. In, in my uh, presentations, I always put up like a Venn diagram. You have a Venn diagram of like, people who can write sweeping histories of 20th century finance and like yeah. people whose great grandparents came from Aleppo, which is where Edmund Safra's family came from. The one overlap is me. And so I was kind of very fortunate that this story kind of found me. Yeah. It does sound very divinely ordained. Did, did the fa- was the family behind the foundation approaching you? I mean, I'm guessing yes. Were they? Yeah. So were they- Edmund Safra you know, died in 1999 Mm-hmm. His wife, Lily Safra, who just died last summer, mm-hmm. ran the foundation, he did not have his own biological children. So it was essentially, you know, her um, who was running the foundation. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So why, 
as you state in the book, so, you know, they approach you and you discover all these pieces of his life. Yet I, I think it came across from your book that he was a very private man. Um, what were there, were there things that you found out as you try to piece his life together that surprised you that you were totally not expecting? Yeah. So, you know, Edmund Stafford's years, he lived from 1932 to 1999. So he was mm -hmm. alive and working when we had CNBC and when we had the internet and all these financial networks. His banks were publicly held. One of his banks was Republic Bank in New York, started in 1965. It was the 11th largest bank in the United States. Its shares were public for 30 years. Anybody could own a stock. He had a Swiss bank that was public. He sold it. He had another Swiss bank that was public. But you would never find him on CNBC. There are no clips of him right. talking on CNN. He would not go to the World Economic Forum. Um, so he was a private man in that way. I could not find even home videos or tapes of his voice. He was a, essentially a private person, even though he had, you know, these very public banks and, yeah. and he had a very big public role in his community. He did not shy away from speaking at uh, community events or synagogues or charitable functions, but he was not up and out there in the world the way a lot of many business people and CEOs are today. Mm. Part of that had to do with his heritage. For him, he was a, you know, a Syrian Jew from Beirut who had gone to Brazil. He was an outsider wherever he went. There was often suspicion and conspiracy mm. theories surrounding him. And his view as, a, as of a banker, especially a private banker, was your stakeholders are your customers, your depositors. You are there to protect their deposits. Everything else is kind of noise. And so yeah. he didn't go in for all that other stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things that impressed me so much about him. It was, it's, it sounds, it, when you read about it, how, how he, he stood by his customers like a hundred percent. It sounds so contrary to the world of Wall Street on so many ways. He was quite unconventional. Yeah. And this is, you know, one of the reasons there was suspicion about him is because his banks didn't do all the things that other banks did. Mm -hmm. He didn't like in, in Beirut, you didn't lend to somebody you didn't know. Right. You lent a small amount of money to somebody you knew. And if they didn't pay it back, it was on their family and it was the honor of their name. And if you were a banker and someone comes to you for their deposits, you don't go to the central bank. You don't go to the FDIC. There was no deposit insurance in these worlds. There were no bailouts you come to the person whose name is on the bank. And that's yeah. the way he always felt. He never believed, even though he was in the U.S., that if something bad happened to one of his banks, that he would get bailed out or the deposit insurance would work for him. Mm. And so when you have that mindset, your mentality is to lend very conservatively. Mm -hmm. uh, so they didn't do mortgages. They didn't really do credit cards. They weren't involved in Wall Street. They did a lot of trade finance, which is like, you know, you have a shipment of electronics. I'll give you half the money you need. You pay me back in six months. Mm -hmm. He did classic private banking where you're leaving your assets with me and I'm getting you a return. Um, they traded gold. They moved banknotes around the world. It's a very boring business. They had to physically move, you know, pesos from Mexico back to the U.S., francs from France mm -hmm. back to the U.S. or around the world. And you get a fee for doing it. And if you don't lose the money, you literally can't lose money doing it. Um, he liked to lend money to uh, projects that were guaranteed by the Export-Import Bank or the World Bank. They might pay a lower interest rate, but they were guaranteed by an institution, and he didn't have to worry about those getting paid back. So mm -hmm. this mentality, which I think all stemmed from 
again, he was part of a multi-generational family who had been bankers in Aleppo and then Beirut, where the type of banking you did was influenced by the community you were in and you're standing in the community. And what he did was rather than simply inheriting his father's little bank in Beirut and operating it, he kind of went around the world and kept starting up new banks in that image, but on this global canvas that were able to tap into trends of globalization to build very large businesses. And yet based on the same foundation of, and principle of trust, that's what's very so much unique, so. right? Very much so, yes. It's, um, it's really a fascinating, uh, fascinating way of seeing it because he really makes it seem like there was a, there's, there's a simplicity to his genius almost. Like he, he sounds like he thought banking was this very simple thing. I can't say I found it simple, but the truth is now you describe it and there weren't, it wasn't a complex Wall Street type of, uh, maneuvering really what, what his signature style, let's say it wasn't. It was simple. Yeah, well, look, he did trading, he did arbitrage, he would, you know, if he sensed that there was something out of whack with currencies, they would go trade. So he was capable of the most sophisticated Sophisticated, right. When I say, you know, that he wasn't out there in public, at certain times, he did give interviews, and he had a certain shtick where he would come and say things like, banking is a stupid business, Uh banking, uh you know, the book on banking was written 6,000 years ago, you know, everything I, you know, it's like the equivalent of everything I learned about, you need to know, You, I learned in kindergarten and he would always sort of say himself just like you know i'm just a simple guy from beirut we've been doing this for ages and it's the same thing um Mm. he had all these sayings from his father about you know make a dollar a day that's okay but make sure you make that dollar every day in other words Mm -hmm. don't take excessive risk or hedge yourself so you don't expose yourself to large risks um another one of their lines was you know if you're gonna set set sail on the seas of banking make sure your ship can you know handle a big wave or a big flood again Mm -hmm. he had all these like adages that he would say, but that really speak to the idea that if you keep it simple and you hold to these sort of basic truths, you're not going to get in trouble. Yeah, it sounds like things that we today in our <laughs> less sophisticated, less, uh, let's say, uh, wealth ridden life could apply in our financial lives, right? Dan? Yeah, well, I think, you know, on the one hand, for him, it was a luxury to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Because he had a name and a name brand. And right. the way the world worked in Beirut in the 1920s, where his father had a bank, there were basically two Jewish banks. Right. If you were a Jewish guy, you went to this one or the other. Mm-hmm. And then when he went to Brazil and started like building up his own financial institutions, there was a constant flow of people in the 50s and 60s coming mm-hmm. out of Syria, coming out of Lebanon, coming out of Egypt. And they all went to him because he was the trusted person. They right. didn't know where to go. So... There's some element in which his sort of heritage and patrimony in his name and what the Saffron name stood for, it kind of made it easy for him to say, I don't have to engage in any gimmicks to attract business. Mm. With one with one significant uh, different um, departure from that, uh, you know, he, he goes to Brazil in the 50s, starts a financial firm. He goes to Geneva in 1959, starts a Swiss bank. And he says, you know what, U.S. is the biggest banking market in the world consumer market. I'm coming here. He starts a bank in 1964 as a startup called Republic Bank. And it's doing okay. Now, the rules in the 60s were you couldn't really compete by offering a higher interest rate. Hmm. Interest rate on a savings or a CD was 2 or 3%. That was it. You couldn't really compete by offering a big premium. You could could give someone something worth $10. So you you open an account, I give you a toaster. So how do you differentiate yourself? Someone in the bank realized that there was no limit on the 
gift that you could give to a third party who brought in somebody to buy a CD. Mm. So you come in, buy a CD. I can only give you a toaster. Your sister comes in and says, Yale's going to buy a CD. I can give her a television. And that was their innovation. I'll give you a black and white TV worth about $300 in the 60s. And within weeks, they had people lined up around the corner getting their televisions. It's a crazy Uh, story. The legend has it there was a woman named Ida Schwartz who referred 25 people and she ended up with 25 TVs. (laughs) The reason they wanted these CDs was because, you know, with a CD certificate of deposit, you lock your money up for a year or two years on a 2 or 3% interest rate, whatever was prevailing. He knew that he could get guaranteed returns in Europe at a much higher rate than that because Mm. he had this global network to place his his, uh, investments. Um, And that's what really catapulted Republic from just another small startup into the realm of much larger banks. Hmm. Dan, do you think, you mean, you definitely have the pulse and, you know, the banking world. Do you think there's anyone today comparable to Edmund Safra? I think, you know, in 2008, when the financial crisis hit and all these companies were going bankrupt, the CEOs were paying themselves, uh, bailouts, someone wrote a, a note, uh, a headline that said, where have you gone, Edmund Safra? Basically oh. saying if, if more people worked this way or had his philosophy, we wouldn't be in this type of trouble. Right. Um, I've, yes, of course, there are responsible bankers. There are good bankers everywhere in the world. There are multi-generational, you know, you still have the Rothschilds in Europe. Um, I just think that the dominant mode of like sort of a publicly held company that's trying to get its quarterly returns. Right. CEO is, you know, CEO knows he's going to be there for five years or six years or seven years. And it's really not going to have to deal with the consequences 10 years down the road. That mentality really does not exist. And we see this, you know, look in Switzerland where the Swiss banks are supposed to be so conservative, they keep blowing up. Hmm. You know, they are losing money, lending, spending huge credit to hedge funds. Um, so I think there, there is something about modern finance with this short-term mentality where you use other people's money to lend it to other people who are lending it to other people, uh, and that's how you make money quickly. Um, I think that is very much part of how the financial world works. And that was alien to someone like Edmund Safra who believed that any business was a family business. Mm-hmm. His fathers and grandparents had done that. Again, one of the great, I think, something about a failure or a tragedy in his life, he didn't have his own biological children. He didn't really have anyone to hand off that next uh, generation to. But mm-hmm. if you asked him in his mind, there was no doubt that his enterprise that he created would last for another 100 years. In fact, they sold 100-year bonds in 1997, which is something companies really never do. Hmm. There's also this, the, Jude, the, the, the Judaism and the, the role that it played in his life. It's almost in his career. It seems like it was inseparable from his career in many ways. Um, I would almost say that it was a big part of his success. Uh, would you agree with that? And could you tell us a little bit about the role Judaism played in his career? Sure. So as I said, he was born in Beirut, but he was a Jew from Aleppo. And the Jews from Aleppo, they call them our Halabis, um, a very unique uh, cohesive community, even if they've left for a hundred years, they often simply associate with each other. Aleppo actually you know, doesn't really even exist as a place anymore, but people still have this as part of their identity. Uh, Halabi Jews are pride themselves on their you know, observance of ritual. So he would put on tefillin, 
very deferential to rabbis, observes holidays. Um, a lot of outsiders would view them as superstitious. They're always saying mm-hmm. Hamsa, the sign of the Hamsa. He liked to do deals on Tuesday. Why? Because in Tuesday in Genesis, God said, you know, and he saw that it was good twice. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm not Syrian, and I still do things, important things on People Tuesday. <laughs> Um, all all liked, my doctor's appointments are on Tuesdays. <laughs> there you go. Uh, he sold one of his banks on the 8th. He waited. It was the 17th. He said, no, we're going to sign the papers at 2 a.m., so it'll be the 18th of the month. His license plate was always 5555. Mm. In the bank, there was an alcove for a mezuzah. Um, at the groundbreaking, I have these photos, the groundbreaking for his headquarters, the 30-story glass building. There are two rabbis. Now, for someone... Um, I think there's a tendency to look at people who are observant and say they're not part of the modern world. Hmm. They're superstitious, primitive in some ways. When you look at Syrian Jews, that's exactly who they are. They could be the most uh, financially sophisticated. He spoke seven languages. He traveled all over the world. He did business in literally every country. This is core to their being. It's not a contradiction that he would carry around, you know, something in his pocket to ward off the evil eye while he's trading you know, gold simultaneously in, in five different places. Hmm. This was in- integral to the sort of person he was, and it's integral if you meet Syrian Jews today, that's exactly what they're like now. Hmm. Um, so the type of banking that he did and the role he saw himself in the community was actually very much tied to the role he had in the community in Beirut and Aleppo. These were highly organized communities with like a formal council that would have a president, a secretary, all these organizations, again, I'm talking about like in the 19th century, and there was effectively a tax. If you were well off, you paid more so that all these institutes can function. There's no such thing as like synagogue dues. You know, people pay when they have an honor for an aliyah or they just give money. Um, staffers were one of the leading families. They knew that they were there to sort of help support their communities. Right. It's a and, sense of responsibility and duty. That's right. And in the 50s and 60s, when the communities in Aleppo and Beirut essentially blow up and those institutions are blown up, he essentially, at the age of, in his 20s and 30s, takes it upon himself to be a kind of one-man institution for the Syrian and Lebanese Jewish communities. So again, all these documents I found, wherever they they were getting together in Brazil, they needed a synagogue, they go to him. A group of Egyptian Jews in Brooklyn in the 60s trying to start a synagogue, they come to Edmund Safra. In 1974, Mm. the first synagogue in Spain built since the Inquisition. They come to Edmund Safran. He gives them money for it. Um, Many of these, it was always often done in the name of his father, which is Jacob Safra. So you will find Beit Yaakov, Kol Yaakov, Ohel Yaakov, Israel, um, in the U.S. You know, anywhere there's a sort of Sephardic community, you will find these institutions. And they're largely ones that he and sometimes his brothers as well endowed. Hmm. It's actually the the level of let's just say the Havat Israel, right? Like especially when you read about how would he take people into the bank, even if it was just for a low level job, you know, people who had just emigrated, he would just take them in because they were Jewish, and you know, he felt that sense of responsibility to help. Yeah, he had a particular um, sense of responsibility for the you know. Beirut, Lebanon was the one Arab country where the Jewish population actually increased after 1947 Mm. because they didn't have the same level of sort of riots and violence there. And a lot of Jews came from Syria. So now they're in Beirut. But in the 50s, 60s and 70s, they start to trickle out. There's civil war. 
Um, and again, people would show up in Brazil, he'd give them a job in the bank. They'd show up in New York. And I've done events. Um, we've had a launch event in Brooklyn with about 500 people. The number of people who came up to me, people whose names I had not come across in my research, mm-hmm. came up to me afterwards and said, I left Beirut in 1970. They gave me a job in the vault. I mean, wow. literally dozens of people at, at many of these events. Wow. By the way, Dan, your last name is Gross. You said you're Syrian. Is your half Syrian? How does it work? Yeah. So my father is a nice Ashkenazi guy from the Bronx. Um, <laughs> he was an only child. Uh, his parents died long before I was born. So the only family we had growing up was my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born in Brooklyn in the 1930s. Her last name is Nasser. Our, our grandparents mm-hmm. have names like Nasser and Dweck. Yes. They each had eight or nine brothers and sisters. So that was the family we had in, in Brooklyn and, and New Jersey. Wow. So you grew up really, really identifying with that side of the family. That's so cool. So, when you know, other people, the whole, um, you know, we didn't have matzo ball soup and brisket. We had kibbeh <laughs> and hummus. We, It's okay. You had we, rice on Passover. <laughs> we had rice on Passover. We did not learn to curse in Yiddish. We learned to curse in Arabic. Um, you know, a lot of parallels, but it's a very different experience. And, in, you know, in the U.S., that's very exotic because there's yes. a very small number of Sephardic Jews here. And uh, in particular in Israel, of course, much more common. Dan, if, you, if you'd had the chance to interview him, maybe you had, I don't know. But if, you know, now it's post-1999, what would you have liked to ask him? What would you have wanted to ask Well, something about, like, the part of his, the, so he died in 1999. Um, I, I did not meet him. You know, I was working as a reporter in those days, and I certainly interviewed plenty of CEOs, but never had occasion to speak to him or meet him. Um, the thing I s- still struggle to puzzle out is the uh, ambition. Hmm. No, there, there was no, some people start with nothing and they want to conquer the world. Right. And that, mm-hmm. that's a, the sort of classic like story of an entrepreneur, right? They, they grew up with nothing and they have something to prove. And once they get going, they don't stop because they want to have a lot of money or power. Uh, he was born, you know, into kind of great privilege. He, mm-hmm. he wasn't born into a bank. You know, of course they were, they were refugees, but they were refugees who left with, you know, when he, his father sent him uh, to Milan at the age of 15 to start trading And he had, you know, a million dollars in a bank account there to start working with. So they were not like, they ultimately had to leave and sort of flee for their lives, but they were not what we would think of as sort of refugees or migrants. They were not poor. They were always very connected to other powerful and wealthy people. Um, and, you know, I think for like most people, you leave your, your home. Okay, you got to move to Brazil. You set up a business there. That's enough, right? You're content. You're right. happy. You do well there. And for him, it was like, no, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to start another bank. And mm-hmm. I'm going to start another one in 64. In the 90s, um, he, uh, he gets Parkinson's disease, and he's starting to get physically debilitated. He decides to sell his two banks in the spring of 1999 for $10 billion. Uh, he gets, so his portion is about $3 billion in cash. So in his, he's in his late 60s. He's ill, having serious like, mobility issues. He owns seven houses, including like incredible real estate in the south of France. And he's already planning to start another financial institution. He was going to take his money and um, start a, you know, an asset management company and bring in other clients. And the, 
what sort of compelled or impelled him to keep doing that, right. uh, even though he had already, by any measure of success that you want to uh, measure it, had already achieved that and then some. Right. That's the that's the question because it mm-hmm. wasn't um, like all people who do well financially. Of course, he liked making money. He liked having money. He collected art. He did all the things that sort of rich people do. Um, but I think there was you know, something else driving him. And I'm yeah. curious as to what that was. Yeah, yeah. No, I could definitely. I'm with you on that one. Now, the circumstances around his death, his mysterious death, I should say, led to a lot of propaganda. I, I remember reading years ago that Vanity Fair article, which I didn't want to read. I, I don't want to reread because I just remember that it, it just had all this like, um, uh, suggestions about his Mossad squad and the battle between his wife, Lily, and his brothers, uh, you know, bullets on his body and other stuff that I think you pretty much debunked here in the book. Um, it almost puts Safra in people's minds as some sort of paranoid Howard Hughes. That's kind of like what the feeling that I remember getting back then what number one was he paranoid, Dan? Was he that was he that type of character? And and what can you tell us about his death to appease those out there who might think, well, you know, I told you, wealth corrupts people and makes them crazy, and you know, ends up being the cause of their demise, kind of thing. Well, to understand what happened in 1999, we have to understand a prior event in his life for which he was known for. Mm-hmm. What I often say is, what people know about Edmund Safford today, they know how he was attacked during his life and they know how he died, but they don't know how he lived or what he did. Mm. And what I'm referring to is there was this episode in the 1980s. He sold what his Swiss bank in 1982 to American express Lewis of the blue chip companies. Um, and they want to sort of make him like, you know, a manager of that unit. And of course, you know, he's treated like a King at his own banks. They have a falling out after a year. He leaves, sells his American express stock. He has a five year non-compete, but it's very clear in 1988 He's going to go open a new private bank in Switzerland that will compete with American Express. At some point, 86, 87, somebody inside American Express decides they want to stop him. Hmm. And in the summer of 1988, all these articles start appearing in the press in Peru, in France, in Switzerland, saying Edmund Safford's a drug dealer. He's in with the Medellin cartel. He's involved in Iran-Contra, none of which was true. Um, in Europe, the libel and defamation laws are very different. So he starts suing these people who publish these articles to get to mm-hmm. the truth of it. And he hires uh, private investigators. And essentially, they, they track it back to there's this guy who was spreading this stuff. And they follow him. And they literally follow him to the American Express's headquarters. It turned out that a sort of a rogue PR person inside the company was behind this whole campaign to smear him. And there's a book called Vendetta, a 500 page book written about that episode. So, so it's oh. one year in his life, Brian Burrow, who's one of the best business writers out there. He's co-author of barbarians at the gate. He wrote an entire 520 page book about that episode where he was sort of attacked for no reason out of the blue. And all these, you know, all this stuff had like currency because he was different. Yeah. So he was from Brazil. He was from right. Beirut because he was Jewish. He was an outsider. People are willing to believe things about people that they Yeah, that privacy that right? we talked about before. Right, right. So that's an episode that's in the sort of background of his life. And at the end of it, American Express, he confronts them with the evidence. 
they apologize. They agree to give several million dollars in donations to different groups that he stipulates bear the hatchet. I, I, From that before, time, you, before you go on, Dan, I, I do want to say that I didn't read the, the, the book Vendetta, but I remember reading in your book this whole episode and just feeling like the pain because, again, he's such a person who, if you would take one word to describe him, it's this word trust, right? And this went right against that which he stood and worked so hard for. Right. It's also you know, the honor of your name, right? Because it wasn't right. just him. His younger brothers had a bank in in Brazil, Brazil. the you know the Safras were a there were other branches of the family, so anything you said about one of them would obtain to another of them. And then again, in a world where central banks and deposit insurance doesn't exist, all you have is a for your, your credibility. Yeah, you know, what matters most is your your credibility and the name and the trust that attaches to that because you don't have anything else to fall back on. So anything that mm-hmm. attacks that can be you know very damaging. Um, by the 1990s, late 1990s, he is suffering from Parkinson's disease and is not very mobile and has a team of like round the clock nurses helping him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's living mostly in Monaco at the you know, penthouse apartment um, that is highly secure. It has like electronic uh, windows and there's security downstairs. Uh, his house was in the South of France, about 20 minutes away, which was very big and had all these openings to the, sort of public streets, that's where he had security people, most of whom were indeed former Mossad agents or IDF uh, personnel. Um, And the story of his death is basically there was a a nurse, a male nurse, an American who had been in the army and probably suffered from PTSD, was not particularly stable, who believed that his position in the household was insecure. The other nurses made fun of him and they, you know, He didn't like his sort of setup. And he felt, he got it into his mind that he would stage an attack, like act like someone was attacking, and he would fend it off, and he would be the hero, and that would cement his place there, and his job would be secure. So this guy in the morning, four in the morning, stabs himself, puts sandpaper on his face, yells that there's an intruder, and to alert the first responders, sets a fire with some medical supplies, um, so it sets off the smoke alarm. This guy leaves the building, you know, says, I've been attacked. The police come. The security guards come from the house in the south of France. Edmund Safford, upon hearing this news that there's a, an intruder, goes and essentially locks himself in a dressing room with one of his nurses. They evacuate his wife. They evacuate the other people at the fire escapes. They're calling him on the phone, telling him it's safe to come out. You can come out. He doesn't believe it. He believes there's an intruder in the building. He doesn't come out and he dies of suffocation along with the nurse that was in there with him. That was the story. The nurse like essentially confessed to this within a couple of days. There was a trial. There were appeals. He was convicted, went to jail. Uh, to your point, soon thereafter, soon after this happened, Dominic Dunn, who specializes in sort of true crime genre, wrote this whole thing in Vanity Fair about, oh, was it the Russian mob? Will this happen? You know, all these, there's no evidence for any of that. Um, mm. And But yet, that's what still, like, remains. And I think, again, a lot of people, they're familiar with that. They're familiar with the American Express episode. They're not familiar with sort of all the things he did in his life mm. before that. 
And now, thanks to you, we're very much familiar with a beautiful life, an incredible legacy, not just to the Jewish people, but to the world, really. Dan, very well done. Where should we find you and connect with you? You can find me on Twitter. My handle is GrossDM. That's the easiest way to find me. Uh, Or on LinkedIn, Daniel Gross. And the book is sold everywhere. Books are sold. And maybe you'll come next time and tell me how you managed to be so prolific, Dan. You'll tell me your writing tricks. <laughs> you sit down and start typing. That's you the... start typing. That's it. Dan, thank you so much. Well done. Kola Kavod, incredible book. Well-researched, well-written. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Daniel Gross for stopping by. You can get his fascinating book, A Banker's Journey, How Edmund Safra Built a Global Financial Empire Anywhere Books Are Sold. Thanks to everyone for being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave a review and rating. Scroll down the Apple Podcast page for the show inside your app. Past a few recent episodes till you hit that review and rate section and voila, there you go. I will be here Friday to answer your questions about money, business, marriage, life. Everything goes around here. And I'll be picking a reviewer of the week. Of course, this person will win a 20-minute money session with me. Also, a final heads up that the doors to my signature coaching program, God Wants You to Be Rich, might be opening pretty soon. So if you've heard about it, but you've not jumped on the waiting list for the program, Can I suggest you do? I really, really recommend it. We might be rewarding those who have been patiently waiting there. Head over to yaeltrush.com forward slash wait list to get on the waiting list for God Wants You to Be Rich. Again, doors might be opening pretty soon. See you here Friday. Have a great week.